Good evening. All right. So, uh, welcome back. Tonight is class number seven. Very special number, as you know. Number seven. It's your birthday today? Oh. Oh, huh? so when's your oh, okay, so when's your birthday then? <laughs> oh, okay, very good. Next week we will not be meeting. That's what I wanted to hear. Yeah. <laughs> but then after that, I think we have three weeks, right? I think we have three weeks after that. But next week, I don't. Again, my apologies, but for some reason I have all these out of town commitments this semester so it is what it is so next week we won't meet but then we will be together for about three weeks and we should be able to uh finish the book of revelation by then otherwise we'll have like part b in the new year (laughs) okay so um tonight i would like to spend the majority of our time in uh, revelation 12 and 13 and there is a, a, like a lot of stuff we can talk about in chapter 12 and 13, in part because we're introduced to a number of new figures or individuals that we haven't met yet. Like previous chapters, when we, when we meet a new figure, there are you know, five different views as to uh, who that individual is or whether that individual is an individual at all. So we're going to do a little bit of um, work tonight just trying to understand the views, but I'm also going to try to um, present the view that I favor and uh, spend the majority of our time uh, trying to help you to understand why. Uh, I want to begin, though, with um, a a little bit of an overview, and for for some of you this will be just a reminder, and for others of you this might be new. But just a little bit of an overview of some of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature and how we interpret apocalyptic literature in light of those characteristics. What we'll do is we'll begin with uh, an example outside of apocalyptic literature. So we'll go to uh, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, says, And the Lord spoke all these words, saying. So when you read that, that means what it says. The Lord spoke, and these are the words he gave. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when you read that, those words mean what they say. There's a God, brought him out of Egypt, out of slavery. You don't have to have a PhD in biblical interpretation to understand it. You shall have no other gods before me. So what does he mean by that? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or the likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So what does that mean? The point is, is when you're reading this kind of literature, it's more of a challenge to apply it than it is to understand it. 
But when you're reading apocalyptic literature, it takes you like 15 times as long just to try to understand it before you can even figure out how to apply it. So there's characteristics of apocalyptic literature that are markedly different than commandment literature or narrative or even psalmic literature, poetry or proverb. So one of the key considerations when you're studying your Bible is do not read your Bible flat. It's one book, which we call the Bible, but don't read it flat. Don't read it all the same. Don't read Genesis the same as you necessarily read Exodus and Psalms and Revelation. You can't come at the text using the same interpretive grid. You've got to be flexible. So if you're in the Psalms, you read it differently than if you're in the Proverbs. If you're in narrative like Genesis, you read that different than if you're in Exodus 20, which is law. And so forth and so on. Now what happens is that when people read Revelation, one of the mistakes that is often made is they try to read it with the same degree of literalness as they read Exodus 20. And it just doesn't allow for you to do that. So what then are some of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature? Well, we've discussed some of those. The first period that we met this semester, we discussed some of those things, and you can review your notes. But one of the things I wanted to emphasize is um, the idea of double fulfillment. So let me uh, <coughs> give you uh, a bit of an example of this, or maybe just a quick little drawing on the board to help us to understand this. We'll just use a timeline. So this cross is going to represent the cross of Christ. Not necessarily the specific date that he died, but the period within which he was living on earth. And this line will represent events leading up to Christ. And this line will represent events coming after. And we'll just put a little person here. And this will represent you and me. So cross of Christ where we are, and we'll just put uh, a big E here for the end times or eschatology, whatever you prefer. Now, in the book of Revelation and in books like Second uh, Thessalonians, there are references made, or books like First John, there are references made to uh, individuals now, these individuals are not given a name like Aaron Rock, Nancy, Marilyn. They're not given names, but there's descriptions, descriptive words or descriptive language used to introduce us to some of their characteristics. So in 1 John, we meet one who is called Antichrist. Now, that could be small a or capital A. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we meet one known as the man of lawlessness. That could be capital M, capital L, or maybe small m, small l. And these individuals are given characteristics of evil, and uh, they're connected with Satan and the works of darkness. But the question is, like, who are they? Or who do they represent? What people group? Or what individual do they represent? So there's different views. Some people say they represent a man. Some people say they represent a, a group of humanity. 
But what often happens is that the individuals that we encounter in uh, books that speak of the end times, like 2 Thessalonians, 1 John, or Revelation, in actual fact have a historical figure that came way before them that in a sense represents what they come to represent in the end times. So I'm going to give you an example of this. About 167 years before Christ, there was a man that existed and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. The fourth. What did he do in and around 167 before Christ, B.C.? Okay. Um, no, he didn't fight against the Romans. He fought against the Jews. And when he conquered the Jews, so there was a rebellion that among the Jews to sort of cast off their oppressors. The group that led the rebellion were called the Maccabees. So if you've ever read a Catholic Bible, there's a book called Maccabees. I think there's two books called Maccabees. It's just basically recording their exploits and their struggles. Well, he beat the Maccabees, and then does anybody know what he did in and around 167? Okay, so he goes into the temple, which was sacred, and he goes up to the Jewish altar, and he takes a profane animal, a pig. As a Jew, you're not allowed to eat a pig. It's considered a profane animal. It's a dirty animal. It's a foul animal. And he sacrifices that animal on the altar. And then he commits a bunch of other acts. He basically outlaws biblical Judaism. He, he's a blasphemer verbally and through his actions. And from a Jewish or Christian perspective, when you think Antiochus Epiphanes, you're supposed to think incarnation of evil. So is that clear? So this is century and a half before Christ. Then fast-forwarding past the cross to 70 A.D., we bump into this cute and cuddly little fellow by the name of Caesar Nero. And what does he do? Persecutes the Christians burns the temple, again, profanes God's holy dwelling. So we're talking about 200 years apart. Antiochus Epiphanes does it, and then Nero does it. Now, both of these individuals are like-minded men. They are blasphemers. They destroy, or at least abominate the temple. And the acts that they commit are called abominations that cause desolation. 
You heard this language before? It's biblical language. So um, when we come to the end times represented by our E, we are encountering other individuals that act a lot like these guys. And I don't have space to write them all down here, but man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians uh, 2. The Antichrist, 1 John 1 and 1 John 5. Uh, the beast, we're going to encounter him tonight. A second beast. Now, all of these individuals participate in abominations of desolation. But the way this then works, if we were to uh, erase all this, is that, and this is where apocalyptic literature can be confusing, is let's say this is our stick figure drawing of the first guy. What's his name again? Antiochus Epiphanes. And then this is our stick figure drawing of Nero. Notice they overlap. So what happens is sometimes when you're reading biblical prophecy, it's speaking of one, but it's alluding to the other. Or it's alluding to one, but it's speaking of the other. And then we get into Revelation, and it just keeps overlapping. So now sometimes you're into a passage of the Bible, and it's speaking about a person like this, and you're scratching your head and you're thinking to yourself, okay, is he talking about Antiochus Epiphanes here? Is he talking about Nero? Is he talking about the emperor too before Nero, uh, Caligula, who was also equally despotic? Or is he talking about someone that is yet to come? And if he's talking about someone yet to come, is it the man of lawlessness? Is it the beast? Is it the false prophet? Is it the Antichrist? And this is where apocalyptic literature can get confusing. But one of the things that helps us to unlock it is sometimes it's speaking of both. It's taking the past and using some figure from history and using that figure as a type. Someone from the past, using that figure as a type of someone that is to come. So therefore, in apocalyptic literature, notably in Revelation, Antiochus Epiphanes becomes a type of the Antichrist. Nero becomes a type of the man of lawlessness. They overlap. Just like if you were to take the person off and draw a temple, the temple that was destroyed in the first century becomes a type of the heavenly temple. The sacrifices on that temple become a type of sacrifices in the eschatological kingdom. So as we're reading apocalyptic literature, the thing I want you to sort of remember is this overlap of past events or past figures symbolized in future events or future figures or past events and past figures becoming types of individuals or events that are to come. Any questions about that? Well, because when we're reading the book of Revelation, for instance, there is a big debate as to whether the events of Revelation as a whole were actually first century or are still future. 
So there's a, there's a school of um, thought that everything that we read in the book of Revelation is all historical. So it all relates to events in the first century. So these people that in the book of Revelation are identified as dragons or prostitutes or uh, beasts are strictly Nero or strictly Antiochus Epiphanes or Caligula or other individuals from the past. And then there's the futurist view, which we discussed first class, that says, well, no, this is more futuristic in its orientation, but what the writer does is he drags events and personalities out of the first century, and he throws them into the future and creates types or figures or, or like individuals or like events in the future. So the, the benefit, of course, to that view is that the book of Revelation is still very preachable into the present because it relates to that which is yet to come. Whereas if it's all first century, then it becomes a little more difficult to preach and to use. And then on top of that, of course, we those time words, I don't know if you recall the time words we looked at, the first couple classes, things that are past, things that are present, things that are yet to come. We've been arguing more or less that the events of chapter 4 forward are more yet to come stuff. So the more we know about Nero, the more we know about Antiochus Epiphanes, the more we know about the ancient temple, the better we're able to understand why some of these figures or events in Revelation are, uh, you know, to be, to be avoided or why some of these individuals are dangerous to the people of God and so forth. Good question. Others? Anybody confused yet? Okay. Just Rob? Everyone else got it? Okay. So, Revelation chapter 12. Some very exciting literature. Chapter 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14 and chapter 15 basically introduce us to some important beings and important events. Yes, there's some song in there, some poetry, some praise. But whereas some of the previous chapters we've looked at the last few weeks really focus more on praise and worship, now we're getting back into a section of the book of Revelation that uh, introduces us to a lot of uh, individuals, or at least um, symbolic individuals. So here's how, here's how it begins. We're going to read the first, verse, uh, the first six verses, and then we're going to spend quite a bit of time trying to understand them. So chapter 12, verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. I want you to listen very carefully, by the way, to each phrase and kind of follow the, the thought flow here. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads, seven diadems or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So this is kind of an, an icky scene, right? She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. A lot of information in there. So let's start this way. Let's ask ourselves, just some, let's do some guesswork. What, what might this event be all about? Or maybe more specifically, who might this woman be? Who might this child be? And who might this dragon be? Now, as you share views, you don't necessarily need to share the one that you prefer if you have a preferred view. But let's just raise our options here. Let's bring them to the surface. Who might the woman be? Let's start there. Let's do some guesswork. Things you've heard, things you've thought about, things you think other people might be thinking about. Over here we have Mary. Michelle. Okay, Israel. God's faithful people. In the future, the past, both. New covenant, old covenant, so there's lots of ways to slice and dice that. What else? So the, 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 the woman might be God's faithful people, might be Israel, might be Mary. Surely there's more options out there. We could probably come up with a dozen of them or more. Yeah? Okay, how about the woman then? Who might the woman represent in that view? Mary. Okay, Mary. She's a God too. God. Any anything at the, the round tables at the back? Any more guesses? Joyce implied it, but no one has yet actually said the church. So the church is another option. Nothing else. Okay, let's move on to the child then. Who might the child be? Again, there's more than one view. Adam. Adam. Jesus. Okay. Who else? Be the church since Jesus. Okay, the church since Jesus. Pardon me? The lamb as in Christ? Okay. How about uh, the dragon? Who might the, dra the dragon be? Satan. Satan. And Satan? Okay. <laughs> we have a convinced uh, guy who's quite convinced of his position. Who else might the dragon be? The Antichrist. Rome? How about a dragon? How about a great red dra dragon? So we have a number of views that have been suggested. Let's then review the description. So let's look a little more closely at the details of each of these individuals. Just sort of list them out. Make sure we've read the text well. And then let's go back into the text and try to do some cross-referencing and some good thinking to try to push us in the direction of a, a proper conclusion. So descriptions of the woman. Uh, as has been said, 
the dominant modern Roman Catholic view is that this is Mary. The dominant historical Catholic view is not that it was Mary. But the dominant modern uh, view is that she is Mary. Dispensationalists and some amillennialists have suggested that the woman is Israel. The majority of amillennialists believe that it is the church and the church only who is represented in the woman. And a variety of folks have suggested that the woman represents God's people through all of time. Old covenant, new covenant, without distinction. So what do we see about her? Well, she's described as, I've, I've written four things down. She's clothed with the sun. So we've got to try to understand what that means. Secondly, the moon is under her feet and on her uh, head are a crown of 12 stars. So 12, that's kind of an important number. It's obvious she's pregnant and she's in agony from that pregnancy. And she births not a female child, but a male child. It's very specific. It, it names the child's gender more than once. So that's what we know about this woman. Then we have a dragon. Now, the, the dragon uh, has historically been understood by dispensationalists as Satan. But there actually is another view that has been presented by amillennialists. Most amillennialists have suggested that the dragon was Herod, who tried to take Christ's life in his, uh, in his cradle. Now, what do we know about the dragon? The dragon is described as having seven heads and ten horns. So, obviously, it's not two horns per head. Like, he's kind of screwy-looking thing because... Not every head has an equal number of horns. Otherwise, you'd have 14 horns. But we probably shouldn't make too much of the seven or the ten. They're, again, symbolic numbers. We know seven has some symbolism attached to it. Ten has probably the symbolism of, uh, of uh, power attached to it. There's a diadem or a crown of some sort on each of his seven heads. He sweeps one-third of the stars onto the earth. Now, who are the stars we haven't identified them, but if you think back to your understanding of maybe what you've been taught about Satan and his demons, angels, so many think the stars are fallen angels when he rebels against God. If this is Satan, he takes a third of the angels with him. They're sort of cast out of heaven. Now, historicists that do not prefer to interpret the book of Revelation with a futuristic perspective have suggested that the third of the stars represent, the stars collectively represent the Roman Empire, which in uh, 313 was divided into thirds and had three different rulers. So historicists believe that uh, this prophecy might have been fulfilled in the the uh, the splitting up of the empire into three. He then waits to devour the child. So he, he wants to, to, to kill this child, presumably because there's something about this child he doesn't like. There's something about this child's identity 
He doesn't just go around eating children, but this one he, d he does not like for some reason. And then finally, we have descriptions of a male child. So the male child has historically been understood as either Jesus, which is the dominant view, or as saints in general, either the, either the church uh, or perhaps um, saints in general. What are we told about him? That he will rule all nations with a rod of iron. So a rod of iron is considered symptomatic of a ruler's staff. I believe one, in one of the seven letters to the churches, can't remember which, he talks about giving them a rod of iron. Rulership, it symbolizes his rule. So this is a royal child or represents something that is royal. What happens to the child, this is significant, when he is threatened by the dragon? He's caught up to God and to the throne of God. And then his mother flees into the wilderness for three and a half years. Now, I think, while I could be wrong about this, of course, that the best way to understand this text is to understand the woman as Israel. The child as Christ and the dragon as the devil or Satan. And the rest of her offspring, which are mentioned in the, uh, the, the text to come, represent righteous believers from Christ onward. Okay, so I'll say that again, and I'm going to tell you why. Woman equals Israel, child equals Christ, dragon equals Satan, and the rest of her offspring, as they are called, are righteous believers from Christ onward. So, you and I. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 37. And all we're looking for here is, we're not looking for a direct tie-in, but we're looking for language. We're trying to understand the whole sun, moon, and crowns thing that is attached to this woman. So in Rev uh, Genesis chapter 37, now the context is, Joseph is having a dream that he is in some way going to be superior to his soon-to-be 11 other brothers. And I want you to pay careful attention to the language of this dream. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon... And 11 stars were bowing down to me. Anywhere in Joseph's life did the sun, the moon, and the 11, star, 11 stars ever bow down to him? No. Who is represented by the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars? No, God wouldn't bow down to Joseph. His brothers. Now, notice his 11th brother hasn't even been born yet. Benjamin. But this foreshadows the fact that all of the rest of Israel will bow down to Joseph. Now, what we're not saying by this is that 
Revelation 12 has anything to do with Joseph. All I would suggest to you is that the language fits. That in Genesis 37, Israel collectively is known as the sun, the moon, and in this case, 11 stars, because Joseph is excluded from it. So therefore, it seems logical, or at least sensible, plausible, is an even better word, to understand the descriptions of the woman in Revelation chapter 12 as symbolic descriptions of, of Israel, collectively. Now, as for the dragon, well, to be honest, that's kind of an easy one. Because in the book of Revelation, we don't have to go that far. We go to chapter 20, verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. What, what you will see, in fact, in chapters 12, 13, 14, and following, that there's a switching back and forth of language between dragon and serpent, dragon and serpent, dragon and serpent. So he, he identifies the dragon, that ancient serpent, serpent, as the devil and Satan. Now, by the way, the devil is the Greek word. Satan comes from the Hebrew. I mean, it's written out here in Greek letters. But it's a reference to the same being, the, the one who kind of commands the hordes, the demonic hordes that opposes the things of God, this fallen angel as we, we probably should understand him. So we know who that is. So that figure has been cleared. The woman probably represents Israel. I'm going to give you a, another reason why the uh, woman uh, is potentially to be understood as Israel. So we're going to go to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 54. And then we're going to go to Micah 4 after that. Again, looking for language here. The reason why we're looking for language and not proof texts is because apocalyptic writers borrow a lot of language from the prophets and from Old Testament scripture. They borrow a lot of the same language. So if we can find some of the language that they use in prophetic books, it may help us uh, build our case. So Isaiah chapter 54, <laughs> verses uh, 4 to 8. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Now who's it speaking of? Speaking of Israel here, God's relationship with Israel. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you when she was rebellious. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer." And then flip over to the prophet Micah. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Read after Jonah. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? 
Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon and you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So both of these passages give us examples of Israel collectively being referred to as a woman. Doesn't prove the point exhaustively, but it allows us to potentially read the woman of Revelation chapter 12 as uh, Israel collectively. We're going to say some more about that in a few moments, but a couple other things I want to point out in the biblical text. 1260 days. So we've already determined that that is uh, roughly three and a half years if you go with the 30, uh, uh, 30 days per month. And we spent some time looking previously at Daniel chapter 9, notably verse 27, trying to understand this 70th week that uh, appears there in the biblical text. And the basic rundown is that in and around 605 BC, a decree went out. And if you date the... Um, if you take uh, 70 and you, let me see here, I gotta write this down so I don't mess this one up. We've sort of talked about this briefly, but I just wanna kinda drill this into our heads. So Daniel's, uh, Daniel 9.27 is the key text we're, we wanna be thinking about. And in that text, he talks about the 70 weeks which are to be understood as 70 seven-year periods. So 70... Uh, seven-year periods. Sorry? Seven-year seven seven periods. Okay? So the 69 weeks, if you look at the, the one decree for the release of the people or the captivity of the people... Sorry, if you look at the... the um, the invasion of Jerusalem in 605 to the release of the people, that's 70 years. So that sort of uh, eats up basically uh, seven times. And, yeah, so it brings that this number down to 60. This number down to 62, right? And now I'm getting confused. <laughs> okay, what is uh, 69 times 7? 483 or 82? 62 times... What's that? 483? 483? So this is the time period of captivity... And if you date it from here, uh, from, from, the, from the release 70 years later, then this takes us into, I think, around 25-ish B.C., or sorry, A.D., which is probably pretty close to the, um, the crucifixion event. I've said this in other classes, and, 
and I'll say it tonight if you're not aware of this, that Jesus was not crucified in 33. You say, well, he's 33 years old. He was born in zero. No, he wasn't. He was born somewhere between 4 and 7 B.C. by our calculations. So, the, so in the year 2000, it was somewhere between 2004 and 2007 years after the birth of Christ. Now, the reason for that is because when they devised the A.D.B.C. calendar, a guy made a mistake in the dating system and miscalculated the birth of Christ to zero. He was about between four and seven years off. So therefore, Christ was crucified in and around uh, 25 A.D. And basically, if you, if you run the numbers you end up eating up 69 of the 70 weeks in this decree onward. And you're left with one period of seven years that is probably being cast into the distant future. And we've suggested that 70th week or 70th seven-year period is probably a uh, reference to the, um, the tribulation period. Now, that might not be a literal seven because we already know the word, the number seven is a pliable number in the, uh, the book of uh, Revelation. So therefore, three and a half uh, might also be a pliable number in the book of Revelation. But if we look at the 1260 days, that fits three and a half, which is roughly half of a seven-year period. And in this uh, vision, the 1260 days would fit either the first or the second half of Daniel's 70th seven-year period of time. Now, if we go back to Daniel's original 70th week prophecy, who is it addressed to? It's addressed to Israel. So perhaps the flight of the woman then into the wilderness symbolizes either the flight of Israel from the dragon who may uh, refer to the beast of uh, Revelation 13, the man of lawlessness of 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, the devil himself, during uh, a great tribulation period in the future that is a fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week vision. Now, the alternative is that the this nation of Israel or this woman that is running from uh, Satan or the beast or the man of lawlessness, depending on how we end up interpreting him, could also include the church. So I'm just throwing out different options for you. Some people say it's strictly Israel. Some people say, well, it is Israel that's going to run from some sort of uh, tyranny or abuse or persecution by the devil during the tribulation. Others will say, uh, well, it will also include Gentile believers or the, the tribulation church. 
those that believe that the church is going to live through the tribulation uh, would suggest that it refers to the whole of the church. So we got some options on the table there. But uh, the point is, is that if this three and a half that is mentioned is meant to bring into our heads Daniel's 70th week prophecy, then whenever this event is taking place, it wouldn't be that much of a leap to suggest that being that the original prophecy was given to Israel, that the woman in flight also refers to Israel as a fulfillment of Daniel's uh, 70th week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Another thing that um, we might consider when we're interpreting this is that the details of the Revelation chapter 12 text fits what we see in Christ's life. So if we interpret the uh, woman as Israel, what nation was Christ born out of? Israel. When he was born out of Israel, how did the devil take that? Didn't like it. The devil actually made some deliberate moves to get rid of this baby. How? We already mentioned one. The work of Herod. How else did he do it? The temptation of Christ. Tried to take him down in the temptation. How else did he do it? Okay. By implication, I mean, Jesus calls them sons of Beelzebub which is a word for the devil. How else did he do it? Judas. So he actually indwelt Judas. Only place in scripture, as far as we know, where Satan himself enters into a specific individual. There may be other instances, but that's the one that's mentioned. So time and time again, we see Satan's direct involvement, if Satan is indeed the dragon, in trying to somehow throw a wrench into God's plan by attacking Christ. Back to Glenn Adams' comment. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we also have an example of double fulfillment in all likelihood. So Adam and Eve mess up, they sin. God starts to speak to them and unpack all of the curses that he's going to uh, levy on them. Notice that the one that tempted them was also identified as a serpent. The dragon is doubly identified as a serpent or the dragon in Revelation. So God is then cursing the, the, uh, the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, we'll start back in verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, the serpent, of course, was a literal serpent. So that animal is cursed. But we know the animal is also indwelt with Satan. So there's a double curse upon the animal and the one who indwelt the animal. I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, in and of itself, you could just read this very literally, but it's kind of weird. So Satan is indwells a snake. The snake is cursed, and the curse that God gives to them is snakes are going to bite your heel, and little boys are going to crush snakes' heads. Okay. Yeah, I guess that happens. 
there is a natural enmity between most people and most snakes. I mean, most people don't like snakes. Some strange people do. Most people don't like snakes, or at least don't care for them. But there, se- there seems to be, or we, we, uh, from the best, uh, best that we can tell, this is also intended to be a prophecy, a messianic prophecy, of the relationship between the, the ultimate son who would come from this woman, Jesus Christ, and Satan centuries and centuries later. So in the crucifixion, in our theology, we believe that Christ indeed crushed the head of the serpent, that he beat the serpent, you could say. Now, what are some passages we could look at? Well, I'll just take you to one here. Let's go to um, Colossians, I think it's chapter 2. Verse 15, now here it's not speaking about Christ in particular, but it's speaking collectively about the demonic, where it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now some might just read this as the Roman rulers, but this sounds an awful lot like rulers and authorities, principalities and heavenlies. This sounds a lot like Ephesians 6 language. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15 is probably meant to have a spiritual connotation, meant to point out that Christ actually did something to thwart or crush the rule of Satan uh, in the Christ event. And there's, there's other passages we could sort of reference as well that, that imply that Christ did something significant to thwart the plans of the devil. So now, when we think about the woman and the child, so if the woman represents Israel and the child represents Jesus, so we could say, okay, well, there definitely is a sense in which Satan was chasing down Jesus. We see that in the Gospels. There uh, is a sense in which the woman had to flee. She fled where to? through the desert to Egypt. You have to go through the desert to get to Egypt. And she was ultimately protected. And then the idea of the child being taken up to God, well, that would refer to the ascension of Christ. So after everything is said and done, he ascends to the Father. We believe he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us. So that another, another reason why it would be appropriate to take this as Israel and Christ is because the, the events fit. Now, if the events fit or speak of Christ, then we have another issue on our hand. That's historical. That's past. If the book of Revelation at this particular juncture is more future, then why would the book of Revelation, speaking of a future event, be taking us back and wanting us to think about Christ? And the answer to that, again, is that the book of Revelation tells us at the beginning that the things you're going to read about are past, present, and future. And that many of the events of the past foreshadow or are duplicated in the events of the future, just like the Antiochus Epiphanes, the Antichrist examples I gave you earlier. So we have in chapter 12, perhaps in the first few verses a pointing back to the past 
And then to sort of bring it into the present or into the future, I should say, uh, a retelling of the same event or the same ideas using different language and giving us some additional details. So if we go to uh, verses, uh, we're going to go to verses 7 and following in a few moments. And what you're going to see is that the, the basic storyline, if you want to call it that, in verses 7 and following sounds a lot like what we already read about in verses 1 to 6. And it just makes me think, well, why would he repeat himself? Again, probably because he wants to emphasize that there's something about this past event, which is supposed to be pictured in the first six verses, that also relates to some future event which is yet to come. So there's going to be a second attack recorded in verse, verses 7 to, uh, to, uh, uh, 7 to 11. Again, that sounded an awful lot like um, what we've already read. Um, okay, I want to take you, just flip back here for a second, to, um, oh, the Gospel of Matthew. I want to go back to the Gospel of Matthew for a few moments. Now, the Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, sorry, chapter 24, one of the most uh, eschatological passages in Matthew is found in Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus is delivering this on the Mount of Olives. And so it's been known historically as the Olivet Discourse. Does that sound familiar to some of you? So in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is speaking about the future. He's trying to describe some things that are to come. And there's a lot of information in it. Um, but I want to focus in on verses 20 to 21 for our purposes And uh, suggest to you that the language of this text, which speaks of a great tribulation, may fit very well with the events that we're gonna, we have and will continue to read about in Revelation chapter 12. So I'll read it to you. Uh, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as, not, such as has not been from the beginning of the word and world until now, no, and ever will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, that is those that have come to faith, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible, even the elect. Now let me just pause there and say this. We're going to actually read about some of those events in chapter 13. So it, again, it fits. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as from the, as from the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And then it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heavens. 
and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven, heavens to the other. So I want you to take note of the fact that this tribulation period, and I, I just want to recognize without confusing you here that this tribulation period might, might refer to just the general tribulation that people experience from the time of Christ until the end of all things. Or it might refer to a very specific period of great tribulation that is yet in the future, which of course would fit the idea of a seven-year tribulation period. During that period of time, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, there's going to be some cosmological signs in the heavens. The Son of Man will appear in heaven. Okay, so let's keep that thought. Going back to Revelation chapter 12, if Christ is the child who is taken up to heaven, then what that suggests is that if that event is taking place within a period of time known as the Great Tribulation, that it is now coming to the end of the tribulation period. Because in order for Christ to appear in the sky, he first is taken up, as the child is taken up in Revelation uh, chapter 12. And if you sort of go back and forth and you're reading chapter 12 and chapter 13 and back to chapter 12 and back to chapter 13, and then you even go into chapter 14 and following, again, you'll notice that a lot of the, the descriptions of events in those chapters sounds an awful lot like what you're reading about in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus says, hey, this is, this is what it's going to look like just before uh, my, my return. Another thing that we want to talk about a little bit is um, the, the idea of uh, Satan, if Satan is the dragon, swinging his tail and knocking down a third of the stars. If those stars are in fact angels, that should cause you to automatically ask yourself a question. And the question should be something like, if the events of Revelation chapter 12 are future, what in the world is Satan doing in the presence of God? That cross anybody's mind? So how do we answer that? Because if, if this was referring to something in the distant past, we'd say, okay, well, sometime around the fall of man or slightly before that, presumably Satan rebelled against God and took some other angels with him and fell from grace so why would we have that kind of language appearing in something that is yet future? Before we answer that question, I want to take you back to um, the book of Isaiah again. And in the book of Isaiah, there is, uh, I wrote this down someplace. I think it's Isaiah 14. We're going to try that. If not, I'm going to have to flip through my notes here. Yeah. Is that 14? Okay. One of the things that uh, Jewish prophets are not afraid of doing is uh, using sarcasm, taunting their enemies. So in 
this passage, they're actually taunting Babylon because Babylon was a superpower at the time. And basically Babylon represented everything that was godless. That's why in the book of Revelation, Babylon is mentioned, the great whore of Babylon. Even though Babylon by this time was like a little farming village. By the time of Christ, Babylon was not a world power. In the 600 years that had passed since the captivity, it was, it was basically abandoned. But it became a symbol of evil. And in fact, Rome is sometimes metaphorically called Babylon. Nevertheless, in Isaiah's time, writing in and around the 7th century BC, Babylon was still evil and was still a superpower. So being very specific and clear, this prophecy is against Babylon. But as is often the case in biblical prophecy, many Christian theologians believe that it also has a double-layered meaning to it and doubly refers to Satan. This, by the way, is where people get the idea in verse 12 that one of Satan's names is Lucifer. It may not be Lucifer. We know it's Satan and the devil, but from this idea of day star or son of the dawn, that's where the, the word Lucifer comes from. This is the only place in the Bible where that word is found. It comes from a Latin derivation of it. And it's from, from this passage that Satan is often called Lucifer. But if this passage only refers to the king of Babylon and doesn't doubly refer to the devil, then one of Satan's names is in fact not Lucifer. Nevertheless, if you look at the text, and we'll just go down to um, verse 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Stars could be literal stars, or they could refer to angels. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then the curses are sort of unloaded on this individual. So this is a taunt or a prophecy against the king of Babylon. No question about it. And he is referred to as the day star. But the language of the text is so lofty that a lot of people think that this probably also dually refers to the devil. I don't have a strong opinion either way, but um, which is rare. But uh, I wanted to at least point out that, that uh, at least in the 7th century, if this does refer to the devil, that the devil is already considered a fallen being. So again, back to the question. What is Satan doing being cast out of heaven in this future event, if he fell millennia before this? Any ideas? Okay, he's going to fall again, that's true. But does it rock your boat at all that he's portrayed as being in heaven? Let's we'll start over here. I just think of Job. Okay, yeah, very good. Yeah. Okay, very good. So we have to go to Job chapter 1, verse 6. And what this does is it doesn't change, it stretches our understanding of Satan's relationship to God. Because we have this very strict view that 
here's hell, here's earth, and here's heaven in the here and now. And that Satan prowls around on earth or hangs out in hell, but he doesn't go anywhere near heaven, meaning the abode of God. But in fact, Job chapter 1 stretches that understanding and suggests to us that even in his fallen state, in some spiritual way, Satan goes to, quote-unquote, heaven and has conversations with God. So what's the context of the book of Job? Well, there's a guy named Job, and uh, he is considered a very righteous man. Very rich. I'm sure you've read the, at least the first few chapters. And in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, the sons of God are not meant to be like a whole bunch of little Jesuses. But it's a Hebraism. The, the Hebrew is Ben Elohim. So Ben in Hebrew means son. Elohim means God, the sons of God. Refer to angelic beings. So the angels present themselves before God. So there's some sort of a, a powwow going on in heaven. And the, the timing of this is probably in and around the life of Abraham, you know, give or take a few centuries. So the sons of God, the angels, in other words, present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, that's the Hebrew for, uh, for the equivalent of the Greek idea of devil, diabolus, also came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan says, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. So clearly then this being known as Satan is on the earth, but now he's in heaven. And it's not like God doesn't really know where he is, but he asks him nevertheless, where have you been? And then from there, he, God is the one that actually puts the idea in his head that there's this righteous guy that he can't take down. And so that's where it all unfolds. But the point, as interesting as Job is, the point I want to make is that Satan has conversations with God, apparently. Maybe even into the here and now. Which is kind of weird to think about, isn't it? Like that Satan and God have meetings. So that's probably how we can best answer the question, well, what in the world is Satan doing in the presence of God and wiping away or taking down th these, uh, these stars with him. So who are the stars? Well, the stars are probably angels that have already fa fallen, who along with the good angels are at some point in the future back in the presence of God. You know, they're not redeemed, but there's demons and there's Satan there, and they're having one of these big powwows. And Satan duplicates an event that probably took place back sometime before the fall of man. He, he again takes his hordes with him, presumably a third of the, the angels. And he comes back down to continue to try to thwart or oppose the plans of God. Now, he is ultimately unsuccessful in doing so. So then what does he do? Now a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So this is probably meant to be understood as if God and Satan and God and the demons are having these dialogues, this is the final one. There's going to be no more of it after this, in this future event. 
He's defeated. There's no place for them in heaven. The great dragon is thrown down as he had been before if Isaiah 14 is a prophecy about something that happened in the past. That ancient serpent, and then it gives us both the Greek and Hebrew words, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So it clears the metaphor, the third of the stars. So it tells us they're the, in fact, angels. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Aha, this goes back to, this sounds an awful lot like the event that we read about in Job chapter one. That one of the reasons why Satan shows up in the presence of God is to accuse the brothers. Who are the brothers? The redeemed, the saints. To... And whatever that accusation might look like, you know, they're not good enough, you know, that you didn't die for them, or you should just damn them, or, you know, whatever that, in some way, shape, or form, Satan is doing, now I want you to hear this very clearly, because this is going to come up time and time again, Satan is doing the exact opposite before God that Christ is doing sitting at the right hand of God. So Christ is advocating, representing redeemed man to the Father. Satan is doing the exact opposite, accusing the brothers. And then they have conquered, when they have conquered him, the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So very specifically zeroing in on martyrs here. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. Now, I want you to keep those two words in mind, earth and sea. They're going to come up again later. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So, back to the dragon and the woman. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, what does he do? He pursues the woman who'd been given birth, who'd given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she will be nourished for time, times, and half a time, 1260 days. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the drag that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Now, here, earth might be understood as the redeemed of the earth who either protect national Israel or in some way by living out the Christian call thwart the plans of the devil. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war. Now, this is the key. This is the phrase I want to focus in on for a bit. On the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. So what's going on here? Well, the rest of her offspring probably refers to one of two entities, the remnant church or remnant Israel. So if the spiritual offspring of the woman is Christ, who are the people that become Christ's brothers and sisters? Us. That's biblical language. We are the family of God. Having been unsuccessful 
in destroying the child, namely Christ, Satan then extends his uh, plans out to try to destroy either the remnant church or, if a pre-trib rapture is accurate, remnant Israel, believers that come to Christ during the tribulation from Jewish stock. So verse 6 and verse 14, twice the dragon hunts down either Christ or other offspring, and twice he is unsuccessful as she uh, flees from him into the wilderness. So lots of reason then to uh, take the uh, pregnant woman as in all likelihood uh, a reference to, to Israel. Now you might ask, well, then why can't we just apply it more specifically to Mary? Because while Mary is... Uh, highlighted in scripture as a righteous woman, as a wonderful woman. Um, if you want to name your kids Mary, it's a good name. She is a great role model. From the crucifixion onward, she plays no role in God's redemptive work on earth, none whatsoever. So the whole idea of her being a co-redemptrix alongside Christ, which is part of Roman Catholic theology, or being venerated, it's it's... This is theology that is made up from silence because it's not grounded or founded in, in any way, shape, or form in Scripture. So it makes more sense to refer more uh, to refer to an entity that is spoken of a lot more in God's redemptive movements, and that is Israel as a whole, from which Mary comes, than to focus on Mary in particular because she doesn't she doesn't play that kind of a role uh, in in the life of. Uh, of, of the church. However, um, as the mother of Christ and as part of Israel, there's probably an allusion to her in the flight to, to Egypt when it talks about the flight into, into the wilderness. Okay. Before we uh, talk a little bit more about uh, the dragon, um, just any questions up till, up till this point? Are you all thoroughly confused? It's good because I'm confused at times too. It's very difficult material to teach because you kind of got to go back and forth, back and forth, overlap things, return to other ideas. It's, you're, you're sort of all over the place. You can't teach it very in a very linear way because it's not linear literature. Anyway, any other comments or questions? Are Don? Yes. Unless you're an amillennialist, that means that he's already bound. So in the amillennial view, Satan is bound now. This is the millennium. He is in some way, shape, or form limited in his, uh, in his work. So could the rest of the offspring be Israel? Yes, I did say that. It could be, but probably the remnant. Because what's the language of the text? Why take it as the remnant and not just the church in general? Because on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Christ. 
So what does that mean? You could say there's two kinds of church. And it's not Protestant and Catholic. There's the visible church and the invisible church. And sadly, the visible church is not entirely composed of the invisible church. There are those that attend church, that hang around church, that presumably are not part of the true church. I mean, there's multiple warnings to that effect in Scripture, that there are people that look like they're part of the church. You know, you count the heads. But the true church, those that are actually born again, is a smaller number than, you know, our Sunday morning attendance, so to speak, in any church, right? So when the focus here is on, on those who keep the commandments of God, you might say that's almost redundant because isn't that by definition what a church is or what a believer is? Well, it's supposed to be, but it's just not. And there, there's more of that actually yet to come where it, talk, it, it, it emphasizes the need for obedience and followership in order to inherit eternal life, which is not a violation of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. But while... This, this is something that you should be very clear-headed on. Like This is one you don't want to get wrong. While salvation, as in justification, is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, obedience and followership is an inevitable and necessary result of true saving faith. So if there is no obedience and followership, there is in fact no saving faith. The obedience and followership followership doesn't make the saving faith but the truly born again person will inevitably act think and live differently over the course of their lives i mean obviously we could talk about exceptions like if you're saved on your deathbed there's not a lot of opportunity to be sanctified but this is how we bridge the whole works versus you know what what works versus grace debate or loss of salvation debate, there's no loss of true salvation. But there's a, whole lot, there's a whole lot of loss of church membership. Or there's a whole lot of loss of the, uh, the, tr- the outer trappings of Christianity. There's many, many, many people who clean up their act and say the right things and go to the right services and participate in the life of the church that 10 years later fall away. You don't say, well, did they actually lose their salvation? No, they demonstrated by a lack of endurance, lack of perseverance, they were not regenerated in the first place. So Hebrews 6 uses the language of taste. Taste is different than ingest, right? You can lick something, but you're not swallowing it. So there are many who have tasted of the church, tasted of the gospel, tasted of the things of Christ, but they've never ingested They've never been internally changed by the gospel. And so, you know, six months in, a year in, they do what Judas did. Judas had all the trappings on the outside for a while, but then he apostatized because there was no internal reality in his life. Peter, on the other hand, had an internal reality in his life because he eventually repented of his lapse and was retread for ministry. So when you meet people who were quote-unquote Christian but now aren't, it's because they weren't truly Christian in the first place. In the sense, they weren't part of the invisible church. They might have been hanging around the visible church. Man, they might even have been pastors, leaders in the church, but there was no true internal rebirth there. And that is why the Bible 
unabashedly says, it's by grace through faith alone that you're saved and you have to be obedient and you have to follow in order to be a true believer. It's not a contradiction. One is referring to the event of conversion and one is referring to the inevitable results, positive results of that conversion. I'll just make one more comment. Yeah, it might go like this but over the long haul, it's going up. It doesn't go like this and stay there, right? So in the book of Revelation, you're going to see that in the, the warning passages uh, that crop up time uh, and time again. There are, there are warnings given to make sure you're following, make sure you're... Uh, you know, you're living righteously. Uh, there's warnings against those that do not repent, that they're going to be cursed. And this is not, this is not new, new theology, and this is stuff that you already find in the, you know, the epistles of our New Testament. Okay. Important thing to think about. Any comments about that or questions? Okay. So those who, and he was telling us, so you know, we have a tribulation period. But those that live through that period, that were never true believers, the only way that they'll actually still be able to be saved is to obey every single law, every single commandment, hmm. and be faithful. And that, so there was no idea of grace that it was, hmm. and I don't, know, I don't know where he got that from, whether he got it from you. But well, I guess, okay, in theory, he's correct. If you can obey every single law that God has ever established without exception, you don't need a savior. In theory. But the problem is nobody can and nobody ever has. Well, yeah. But if a person could obey all the laws of God, it's, I mean, it's an argument from... Uh, lunacy because it's impossible all people fall short of the glory of god the purpose of the law even in the old covenant was yes on one hand to keep us in check but the other purpose of it is it's our schoolmaster to bring us to christ meaning that it it the fact that you fall short of god's law reminds you of your need for a savior so you got all, you're out on like multiple counts. For those of us that do believe in original sin, not all Christians do, you're also out on that account. Uh, you're, you're out on that account. You're out because you haven't obeyed God's law. And then you're out because there's all sorts of things you should be doing that you aren't doing. So it's not necessarily that you're violating a law, but you're still not doing what you should be doing. So there's multiple strikes against you. Um, I, well, what you said, I, I find odd and strange. I would disagree with that preacher um, because that's, that's an impossibility for a person to uh, perfectly fulfill the law. And I mean, he, you know, the book of Hebrews really reminds us that Christ is the only one that was sufficiently able to do that. So. But I want to be clear. Do you all understand the difference between justification and sanctification? You should, because people ask you these questions. One of the kids in our Sunday school asked this just a couple weeks ago. Um, 
you know, and, and the teacher was trying to answer that question. Kids are going to, t- if you're telling me I got to obey mom and dad, I shouldn't swear, I should stop smacking my sister, and then on the other hand, you're telling me I just need to trust in Jesus to get to heaven. Like, how do those two pieces fit together? Because people can hear two different things. It's not by works you're saved. Oh, but you got to do good works. Both those concepts are true, but the question is, how do they fit together? So you, you need to be clear on that and study that out and be able to articulate that to people. Okay. Any other comments to those uh, along that line? Pardon me? Oh, you're, oh, you're welcome. Yeah. You guys ready for a snack and a coffee? Okay, folks, um, just a couple clarification. I got, I was sort of, uh, I was uh, confused momentarily. I started writing stuff down up here and I uh, got confused. So just to be um, a little more clear, in 458 BC, so 70 years, just forget about this being part of the 77. So in 458 the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem. So if you date it from there, you take 458 BC, so you got the, the, the captivity, 605, Jerusalem's destroyed around 586, there's seven years in captivity, from the issuing of the decree through to the um, crucifixion is, is uh, the first segment of the 77s, and then the seventh, the 77 is thrown into the future. So that's better math. Other point I wanted to make is uh, someone asked me a question about the church. So what I'm trying to do when, we're, when I'm teaching through this material is share with you my view as to how I see this fitting in the timeline, but I'm also trying at times to introduce you to the other views. Um, I'm also, in addition to that, trying not to teach the book of Revelation just as one big timeline. I'm trying to teach it thematically and help you to understand the text as it comes up, you know, chapter by chapter. That's why I told you the first class, I'm not going to take a class that's supposed to be on biblical theology and turn it into a class on systematic theology, although we do have to do a little bit of systematic theology along the way. So when I was talking about the people that are on earth during the tribulation, um, and I mentioned the church, all I'm saying is that there's some people that believe that that may be the case. That's not my personal view, but I'm actually okay with that view. So my view is that the elect or the people of God that are being spoken of from chapters 4 through chapter 19 are Jewish believers, for the most part. I mean, certainly it's possible that... um, Gentiles will come to faith during the tribulation, just like during this period of Gentile ingathering, Jews still come to faith. But the majority now is Gentile, the minority is Jew. In the tribulation period, the majority will be Jewish, the minority will be Gentile. But along the way, when I say, well, it might be the church, I'm just letting you, I'm throwing that out because it may be that the rapture of the church is post-tribulational. I mean, there is some evidence for that. That's my second favorite view. Um, so it's not like you ha- if you're in this church, you've got to be a pre-tribber. That's the only way. 
if that was the case, everybody prior to 1850 is going to hell because pre-tribulational rapture was not a dominant theology until then. Okay? So those are just a couple clarifying questions, a couple clarifications based upon some comments during the break. So back to uh, this war in heaven, a couple comments. Let's talk about Michael. Verse 7 says, Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and, his arche- Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. Michael's mentioned two or three times in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, chapter, chapter 12. In uh, Jude 6 or Jude 7, he is described as an archangel. So we know based upon the fact that he's mentioned that uh, Michael is an archangel. We don't know a lot about the structures and systems within the angels of God, but it would seem that there are some that maybe rise to the surface and are princes of sorts among the angels. So we have uh, Gabriel and Michael. Those are the only two mentioned in the Christian Bible. Outside of the Bible, uh, in Jewish literature, there's also Raphael and Uriel. Those are a couple of other archangels that are mentioned. Presumably those are those are accurate. But this particular angel that's mentioned here is, uh, is Michael. And he sort of leads the charge against rebellious uh, Satan. Now, in some Christian cults, Michael is Christ. You may have heard people tell you that before, but... That's not our view. So the dragon is uh, defeated. And if this is future, I'm a futurist, so I think it is. This is a doubling back in all likelihood to a previous casting out that took place at some point in the distant past. Now, when this casting out takes place of Michael, or sorry, uh, the dragon and a third of the angels, the response is salvation, power, kingdom, the kingdom of God has come. So there's this, these words of doxology and praise to God, as we often see. Uh, there's uh, uh, a, pr- a praise to God that the accusers, accuser of the brothers has been kicked out. And then there's a warning, a rejoicing in heaven. But what else is there? There's a warning that comes down to us to be careful. So look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. In other words, this world. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, I just want you to flip ahead just very briefly to chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. And then go to chapter 13, verse 11. And I saw another beast rising out of the earth. We're going to discuss who these beasts might be. But notice earth and sea, earth and sea. The beast that rises out of the sea um, is described as one who is opposed to the things of God. The beast that arises out of the earth is described as one who is opposed to the things of God. And uh, earlier, back to chapter 12, it says, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down. So this kind of demonstrates the the expansive... um, Uh, reach of the devil's work during this period of time, bringing both earth and sea together. Just as last week we talked about the angel of God coming down and putting his foot on angel and sea, demonstrating dominion, the expansive dominion of Christ. So here we have the devil coming down and bringing these beasts from earth and sea to also try to expand his dominion and bring attack to the people of God. So they're also... 
they're also uh, asked to prepare for great wrath. Again, because during the, the latter times, there will be great wrath uh, that's poured out on earth. In verses uh, 13 and 14, the defeated dragon again tries to kill the woman, as we've talked about. He's unsuccessful, so he tries to uh, again destroy her offspring. So if this is during the tribulation, then there's going to be apparently a, a measure of protection placed on Israel for three and a half years. Remember, it says, again, if the woman's Israel, she fled into the wilderness again here. She flees for three and a half years for time, time, half a times and is protected. That would suggest that during the, the tribulation, if it's seven years, that for half of that, there's going to be a measure of protection or a measure of uh, escape for the Jewish people from the work of the devil. Uh, an alternative view, an, interp an alternative interpretation to try to explain this event, for those that believe that the events of Revelation chapters 4 and following are historical, if you go way back to Luke chapter 21, Jesus warned the Jewish people that a time of persecution was going to come and you're going to have to flee for the hills. So some have suggested that this is referring to the persecution of the Jewish people during the first century leading up to the destruction of the temple. And this three and a half year period is not literal, but it just refers to a period of time where the Jews fled from persecution and temporarily spent time uh, you know, outside in the wilderness you know, we know of different groups, of course, that did flee from Roman persecution. If you've ever been to Israel, you go to um, uh, Masada, you go uh, to the north. No, not Petra. Um, where the Essenes hung out, Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls. Qumran. Qumran. You go to Qumran, you go to Masada. Those are communities where during the, the first century, Jewish people fled to escape either from Rome or walked out of Israel to try to live their lives in peace and were later attacked and destroyed or persecuted in some way, shape, or form. So the rest of the offspring then, if it is first century, refers to the believing community of the day. Um, I would prefer to take this as messianic believers that come to faith in Christ during the... Uh, tribulation period. So then we have the beast from the sea in uh, chapter 12. Oh, one more comment. A tail end of um, tail end of chapter 12. We already commented on this in some way, but on those that keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. You see that? Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Christ. Again, true believers, saved by grace through faith, of course. We know that from the uh, book of Ephesians, the book of Romans. But keeping the commandments of God and being a testimony for Christ is also a mark of true belief. And that is stressed here. So chapter 13 then. We're going to be introduced to two beasts. They presumably do not refer to the same person because when we're introduced to the second beast, he is encouraging people to worship the first beast. So that wouldn't make sense if it's a reference to the same person. So two different beasts here. 
So chapter 13 says, And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. Uh, sorry, I need to skip down here. Chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So notice, to it the dragon gave his power. So the beast and the dragon are not the same. So the beast is not the devil, if the dragon is the devil. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This is not a reference to Gorbachev's birthmark, by the way. Some people used to believe that. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So the beast of this chapter, again, we can't be super dogmatic, actually fits a description of an individual that was given to us in 2 Thessalonians. So we need to flip back to 2 Thessalonians, 2nd chapter. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, neither by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to have come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. By the way, the day of the Lord is not a reference to one specific day necessarily, but to a period of trial in the future. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. What does he do? He opposes and exalts himself above, above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Awful lot like what Antiochus Epiphanes, sounds a lot like what Antiochus Epiphanes did. And from the perspective of the Thessalonian church, what Nero will in a few decades do. So th this prophecy in some ways ref points back to Antiochus Epiphanes points forward to Nero, but in the distant future can also point forward perhaps to the individual in Revelation 13. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed at his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it uh, will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse uh, to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. With the tip of the hat to those that believe that this is a reference to just groups of people in general that oppose the things of God, possible interpretation, it seems to me that uh, uh, perhaps there's a greater possibility that that individual is represented in either beast number one or beast number two in Revelation 13. So while we don't know the specific name of this person, uh, this person could be the individual that's also labeled as the Antichrist in 1 John, I won't look all these up, you can write them down, 2.18, 221 or chapter uh, 4 verse 3. This individual has been identified as uh, throughout history as an, 
uh, one of the Roman emperors, Caligula or Nero. He's also been identified by some as the Pope or some sort of an end times figure. By the way, I, I do get a little bit of a kick out of people that want to identify uh, Protestants, that want to identify like the Antichrist as the Pope, but they never pick on the Orthodox Church. It actually demonstrates the fact that, you know, we have great, in Canada we have far greater cultural connections to the Catholic Church than we do the Orthodox Church. So I'm not in any way, shape, or form a, an advocate of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church as a whole is, is heresy. But we sort of give the Orthodox Church a pass. And the, the Orthodox Church doesn't teach any more truth than the Catholic Church does. But based upon the fact the Catholic Church is more dom dominant in the West, we always pick on the Pope, but we give the five patriarchs of the Orthodox Church a pass. So we have to be a little bit careful about just picking dominant figures in our culture and you know, labeling them as, as these individuals. Nevertheless, that's, I'm just throwing that out because I want you to be aware of uh, some of the options that have been suggested. Ultimately, this person probably refers to some yet unnamed end times figure. Now, the ten horns, seven heads, point to his power. He has blasphemous names written on his, his heads, which speaks very much of Antichrist. Again, tying back to 1 John, if the Antichrist is one individual, this would be a good candidate. The animal-like descriptions are important. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7 and look at Daniel's prophecy, Daniel takes the figures of various animals and attaches them in his prophecy or interprets them in his prophecy as references to kingdoms that are yet to come. So from Daniel's perspective, 6th century, there's going to be, well, there's, there's Babylonian. Before that, there was Assyrian, but there's Babylonian. Then there's going to be Persian, Medo-Persian. There's going to be Greek. There's going to be Roman. And the, the animals that are identified in chapter 7, these beasts, tie into each one of those kingdoms. Well, here we have sort of a, a coming together or a blending of all of these kingdoms in this one figure. So whereas each of these four kingdoms represented evil, identified as leopards and lions and so forth. This individual uh, that is going to come is going to be a, a coming together, a blending of all of those. So he's going to be like a, a superstar in the area of evil. So whereas during the 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy, there were four evil uh, empires. In the final week of Daniel's prophecy, there's going to be one that, in the sense, surpasses them all. With regard to the mortal wound, uh, much has been said about this, but um, probably the best interpretation I can give you is that if this person is opposed to the things of God and is anti-Christ, just as he accuses the believers, whereas Christ advocates on our behalf, he's always trying to in some way imitate or replicate or oppose the truth. And if you go back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, when we're introduced to the lamb on the throne, it says, uh, And between the, the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It has seven horns, seven eyes. 
This beast has seven heads, so there's a, a sense in which it's trying to replicate Christ. And just as Christ is portrayed as one who is wounded for the sins of the world, slain, so the beast, in some way, it would appear, is trying to replicate the things of Christ or imitate the lamb by also presenting himself as having some sort of a wound. Now, the question then is, well, how far do we take that? Like, if, if this is one individual, like, is he literally going to have an identifiable wound? Or is that piece of information given because they want to point out the idea of him imitating or trying to somehow replace Christ? He's, he's anti-Christ, but he's trying to, in a sense, usurp or take the place of Christ. Some have gone so far as to say that um, this man is going to die and be resurrected like Christ. Uh, others have suggested that he's going to have some sort of a, a literal fatal wound that the world will see and it'll be healed. They'll so be, be so blown away by it that that will somehow increase his, his standing. I'm not sure I, I, prefer, I, I, I uh, feel comfortable with taking it that far, although historically dispensationalists love to cross every T and dot every I and think about all this kind of stuff. I, uh, I would just suggest to you that baseline, the baseline takeaway to this description of the mortal wound is that this individual will present himself as some sort of a lamb, a savior, one who will appeal to the world in some way. There'll be some aspect of his personality or his story that will uh, attract people to him. But then it goes on to tell us what his true colors will be like. Because in, in verses 5 to 10, the beast is given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it says he's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, uh, half of the tribulation. He opens his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So if you're a post-tribber, that would be the church and believers from Israel. If you're a pre-tribber, that would be those that come to faith in Christ through Israel uh, in the tribulation. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So there's some sort of global rulership here. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Every, that is, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So there will be a remnant. The remnant is either church in Israel or it's Israel only. Nevertheless, there'll be a remnant that will be on earth during this individual's reign. And they will be protected uh, from at least the worship of him because they are true believers. Their names are written in the, the Lamb's book of life. But there is a warning as well. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So the information is given in the now and in the future to warn the saints against both little antichrists and perhaps the ultimate antichrist. Again, 42 months might mean half of seven years or simply part of the end time 70th week period. The beast is played, paid some sort of global homage, but the elect are spared and at the same time called to persevere during this period of time. Okay? Now I had hoped that we were going to get into the, uh, 
the uh, the second beast, but it looks like we're running out of time, or we've run out of time. Uh, let me ask you this. Can I keep you for about three or four more minutes? Is that okay? And I'll just finish this up very quickly. So second beast, he exercises authority, he performs miracles, and he incites idolatry. So here we're introduced to another satanic-like figure who's also called the beast, or a beast. As I mentioned, the previous beast comes from the sea. This one comes from the earth, and he's very lamb-like, which is an animal of the land. He also tries to mimic the lamb, but he's a liar. Now, the second beast, if we flip over to chapter 16, verse 13, is actually identified for us, we don't have to guess, as a false prophet. So if you look at chapter 16, verse 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. The second beast, in other words. And then one more reference, if you go to chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had did the signs by which he deceived those that had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So the, the, the biblical text says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So it looks innocent, but it speaks that which is evil, which ties into the fact that it's a false prophet. It speaks that which is false. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it, is, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to take breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who did not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Chapter 13, verse 13, talks about fire from heaven. He has the ability to bring down fire from heaven. This is probably meant to be understood as the ability to perform counterfeit miracles, much like Old Testament prophets could call down fire from heaven. This individual is able to mimic the power of God in some way, much like the magicians tried to in Egypt. So there'll be power in this false prophet that will lure people into thinking that this person in some way represents God or is God. The takeaway then is, just because you see something powerful and miraculous doesn't necessarily validate folks that it's from God. Because even in biblical history, going right back to the Exodus event, there are times when those who are false teachers can perform counterfeit miracles. Secondly, verse 14, he induces idolatry to the first beast. So in some way, he points those back to the man of lawlessness or the antichrist. Verse 15 <coughs> uses the word allowed. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. What does this tell us? That even while he is performing evil acts, God is still sovereign. God is still allowing 
this individual to do what he is going to do. In verses 16 to 17, he controls the monetary system through uh, uh, a mark. And again, people love to try to figure out if this is MasterCard or Visa or debit or Interact or online banking and so forth and so on. Um, not sure that there's much value in trying to do that kind of guesswork because I'm not sure that the scary part is should I buy a debit card or, sh or should I get a debit card or should I take out a visa? The point of the text is that this ruler is going to control everything. And if you control the monetary system, you control the world. It's not the people with the, the, the biggest tanks that win. It's the people with the most money that win. Uh, so I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out the specificity of what this is going to look like but uh, that in some way, shape, or form, this individual is going to have global control. And whether it's global control uh, over money and military and politics, doesn't matter a whole lot to me. He's going to be in control, and people will come under his rule. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, the people of God bore the law of God on forehead and arms or hands. This individual is going to mark people on forehead and hands with his number. Probably not, sorry people, probably not literally, but just as the people of God in Deuteronomy 6, 9 came under the rule of God by bearing his law, by carrying his law, the way these people are going to be marked is probably not with a big tattoo 666, but by surrendering themselves to him, by coming under his rule, by casting off the things of God. 666 uh, in the first century referred to Nero Caesar. That's pretty much a fact. Because if you calculate the letters in Nero Caesar's name, uh, it comes up to 666. So Nero probably was the immediate reference to this number, or referent, I should say, to this number. He is the one that would in the immediate represent this blasphemous system, this controlling system, this godless system, this global system, because Rome basically had control of the world. So in the immediate fulfillment, uh, Nero Caesar would have been the individual, I think, that John had in mind. But just as Antiochus Epiphanes prefigures Nero, Nero prefigures this eschatological figure. And so Nero stands as a, a type of one who is yet to come in the distant future, who will rule like him, and who will stand for the same kind of godlessness that men like Nero stood for. Another point then with regard to 666 is not only using their numerical system of calculation does it add up to Nero Caesar, but the number six in and of itself falls short by one three times of the number seven. And so there's probably something to that as well, that it becomes not only a representation of Nero's name and by extension the, 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 uh, the false prophet and the antichrist, but it also is a symbol of imperfection in and of itself and therefore reinforces how different this individual is going to be from the true and living God who is perfect and holy in all ways, shape, and form. Okay? Well, uh, I need to let you go, so uh, thanks for coming, and uh, we'll see you again in two weeks.